I'd like in this brief talk to speculate a little about what the future might hold for the world of sociology publishing. Future gazing in publishing is a bit of a mugs game. It's all too easy to make predictions which turn out to be spectacularly wide of the mark. Back in 2000, for example, Microsoft posted on its website a chronology of the history of the book, running all the way from Gutenberg to the year 2010. By 2010, Microsoft boldly declared the print book would be so much a thing of the past that the standard definition of a book you'd find in Webster's Dictionary would refer not to an object made up of print on paper, but to a collection of electronic files. Microsoft's obituary for the print book was, of course, just a little bit premature. For example, today, most publishers find that print sales make up 95% or so of their book business. But Microsoft's prediction of the future wasn't entirely wrong. For example, just in the last couple of weeks, the world's largest bookseller, that's Amazon of course, announced that it was now selling more electronic books than hardbacks. So things in publishing do change, and change quite radically, sometimes faster than we expect, sometimes more slowly. And although publishers don't agree about everything, most of us would sign up to the idea that if you want to see what the future might hold, you should take a look at journal publishing, and specifically, take a look at journal publishing in the areas of science and medicine. So the prevailing wisdom in our business is that where journals lead, books will follow, and that where science, technology and medicine in particular go, the social sciences and humanities will not be far behind. So, if we accept that premise for a moment, that STM journals predict the future of publishing, what can we foresee? Working for Wiley Blackwell as I do gives some answers to that question. Our business publishes around 500 journals in the social sciences and humanities, and if I'm allowed to brag for a moment, publishes more ranked journals in the social sciences than any other publisher. But we also publish another 750 or so journals in the sciences and applied sciences, and so have plenty of insights into what the hypothetical future might look like. Some features of that future world look comfortingly familiar. Peer review is still fundamental to scholarly communication. Amid all the hubbub of information on the internet, it's peer review and acceptance in a credible journal that marks a piece of work out as worth paying attention to. And peer review isn't going away because it underpins the whole system of appointments, promotion, tenure. In this future world, the journal article and the book still reign supreme, for much the same reason. They are the currency of validation, and so won't be replaced any time soon by blogs or by wikis. But some things in science do look startlingly different. Take China, for example. Last year, Wiley Blackwell published articles by 16,000 Chinese authors. We had more articles from China than from any other country in the world, bar the United States. In some fields, chemistry and material science, for example, Chinese research leads the way not just in quantity, but in quality too. That may seem a long way from where we are in sociology, but maybe not as the Chinese government begins to give higher priority to social science research. Our book sales in the social sciences in China have been doubling year on year, 
and I saw some data last week which showed that for one of our journals in geography, three of the ten heaviest users were libraries in China. So what else looks different in science? Well, in some chemistry journals, you can not only read articles online, but you can do things with them too. So, for example, if you hover your cursor over the name of a chemical compound, a box will pop up which shows you the structure of that chemical, and it might show you the molecules rotating in 3D. In a system we've been developing, you can go from the name of the compound to a database which tells you all you need to know about that compound, and from there you can go to a website where you can actually buy the chemical you happen to be interested in. We call that system functional chemistry, and the talk among publishers is about, if you'll forgive the jargon, making content functional. In other words, adding information and links to the article so that it becomes more functional, more useful to the reader. That too sounds a long way from sociology, but in fact it isn't. Under the surface, these clever pieces of software depend very simply on tagging the content of an article or a book chapter with specific bits of information, which means you tag the words sodium chloride, for example, so that the system knows that that's the same thing as the structure NaCl. The equivalent in sociology is that you tag an article so that the system might know that it's about social theory, that it's about post-war social theory, that it's about the work of Tony Giddens, that it's about the theory of structuration, and so on. Well, what use might that be? The answer may be less obvious than in our chemistry example, where tagging the name of the compound takes you straight to the manufacturer. But here's an instance of what you could do. If all the hundreds of thousands of articles and book chapters Wiley Blackwell publishes in sociology were tagged in this way, we could immediately collect together everything we publish on Tony Giddens or on post-war social theory or whatever it is that the reader might be interested in. That way the reader would find everything we had on Giddens in sociology, but he'd also discover work on Giddens that he wouldn't expect to find. For example, articles by geographers using structuration theory or by political scientists and so on. In other words, by classifying and tagging articles and chapters, publishers can help readers find exactly what they need. The jargon word we publishers use for this is discoverability. Discoverability is a real issue in the messy world of the internet, where a search on Google may bring you hundreds of results, but not necessarily the key ones or the right ones, and not necessarily in the right order. The ideal state of affairs is one in which a publisher knows what a reader is interested in and can match those interests to what they have to offer. So the publisher knows that Professor Wilson, for example, at the University of somewhere, is a sociologist, works in social theory, and will probably be interested in a new paper on Giddens that's about to appear in the Journal for the Theory of Social Behaviour. The crock of gold at the end of that particular rainbow is one where readers don't have to find what they're interested in. What they're likely to be interested in finds them. That may sound a little abstract and a little far-fetched, but you won't be surprised if I tell you that this kind of thing is going on in sociology publishing already. All the articles in the Blackwell Encyclopedia of Sociology which George Ritzer edited for us, are classified in this way, as are all the papers in our online review journal, Sociology Compass. I'd like to finish by picking out a third area in which science appears, on the surface at least, to differ from social science. That's all the debate and activity around what's called open access publishing. For those not familiar with the issues here, the so-called open access movement 
advocates that all government-funded research should be made available free of charge on the internet. The most successful recent journal launch, bar none, is the journal PLOS One. Launched four years ago, that journal is already currently publishing a staggering number of papers in excess of 7,000 articles a year. What's different about the journal is this. First, the authors pay a fee of $1,350 to have their paper published, and when they do, their paper is published within two or three weeks and is then freely available to any reader. Before you jump to the conclusion that PLOS One is operating like some deep-sea fishing trawler scooping up anything within reach of its net, I should add that this year the journal received its first impact factor, and that impact factor is a pretty impressive four. What PLOS One suggests is that change is afoot in journal publishing. It shows that some scientists are willing to pay to have their article appear very quickly. That's often because those biologists and medical researchers are able to use a portion of their grant money to fund publication, and many of them will be responding to mandates from their funders that require them to make their research available in that way. Is this a trend that's coming to the social sciences? To an extent, it has already arrived. Pretty much all the main publishers in the field are happy to support a version of open access in which the author or his funder pays fees to contribute to the costs of the editorial and publishing process. Where publishers draw the line is in objecting to the idea that they should receive no payment at all for the investment they make in publishing and promoting journals. So where do these arguments take us? I started by suggesting that if you look carefully at the frontiers of publishing in science and medicine, you can see the future of publishing in the social sciences. But the closer you look at our business, the less true this proposition becomes. What's at the cutting edge of publishing in the sciences is to be found in the social sciences too. The avant-garde can be found closer to home in our own disciplines. The future, you would say, is all around us.